worship is from Psalm 7. I think you'll see how it fits with our text in Daniel chapter 11. Psalm 7, God calls us to worship a Shagion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush, a Benjamite. O Lord my God, I take refuge in you. Save and deliver me from all who pursue me, or they will tear me like a lion and rip me to pieces with no one to rescue me. O Lord my God, if I have done this and there is guilt on my hands, if I have done evil to him who is at peace with me, or without cause have robbed my foe, then let my enemy pursue and overtake me. Let him trample my life to the ground and make me sleep in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Rise up against the rage of my enemies. Awake, my God, decree justice. Let the assembled peoples gather around you. Rule over them from on high. Let the Lord judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, according to my integrity, O Most High. O righteous God, who searches minds and hearts, bring to an end the violence of the wicked and make the righteous secure. My shield is the God Most High, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, a God who expresses his wrath every day. If he does not relent, he will sharpen his sword, he will bend and string his bow, he has prepared his deadly weapons, he makes ready his flaming arrows. He who is pregnant with evil and conceives trouble gives birth to disillusionment. He who digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit he has made. The trouble he causes recoils on himself. His violence comes down on his own head. I will give thanks to the Lord because of his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Our scripture reading is once again from the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 11. And Zechariah, of course, is a prophet during the restoration period after Israel was returned from the Babylonian captivity. Zechariah chapter 11, beginning in verse 1 and going through verse 6. Open your doors, O Lebanon, so that fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O pine tree, for the cedar has fallen. The stately trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, the dense forest has been cut down. Listen to the wall of the shepherds, their rich pastures are destroyed. Listen to the roar of the lions, the lush thicket of the Jordan is ruined. This is what the Lord my God says, Pasture the flock marked for slaughter, their buyers slaughter them and go unpunished. Those who sell them say, Praise the Lord, I am rich. Their own shepherds do not spare them, for I will no longer have pity on the people of the land, declares the Lord. I will hand everyone over to his neighbor and his king. They will oppress the land, and I will not rescue them from their hands. Andre, can you come lead us in prayer? Well, we now continue in that part of Daniel that many Christians find baffling. Who are all these kings? And what is Daniel describing in Daniel chapter 11? One war happens right after the next. One king rises, another king falls. They fight. One wins for a while, then the other is given the upper hand and and turns the tables. It seems mystifying to us, especially when we don't spend much time learning the ancient history of the three centuries before Christ. So we'll have to look at a little bit the history here of Greece and Rome in the couple or two to three centuries before Christ in order to understand this prophecy. And my apologies up front because this is going to sound more like a history lesson 
than a sermon, but it really is necessary to do that in order to understand what Daniel is prophesying. And I, I did leave the R-rated parts in the sermon because anytime you start dealing with history, you start getting into some pretty graphic stuff. And all of this, of course, is related to Daniel's prophecy. So I don't know how else to say this. At least don't have brand new people visiting who wouldn't understand some of these graphic things that take place. But there are some very graphic details in history of this time period that we need to cover to understand what Daniel is really talking about. But as I have said earlier, it helps to understand that Daniel is doing nothing more than building on what he's already given us in the earlier chapters of Daniel. Remember, we talked about the four kingdoms of Daniel. We have the gold, the silver, the bronze, and then the, the iron mixed with clay, of course, matching four kingdoms, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and then Rome. And so we're building on these details, and that helps us make sense of this last literary section in Daniel 10 through 12, because this section is a fuller explanation of what just took place in Daniel chapter 9. Remember, Daniel chapter 9 introduces us to the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel. And now Daniel chapter 10 through 12 is an expansion of what's going to take place during the 70 weeks. And of course, the 70 weeks ends with the coming of the Messiah and the end of the Old Covenant world. And so we're going to read about this, the sequence of historical events that take place from the time of Daniel on all the way up till the time of Christ. And we'll start seeing just a little bit of that detail come into focus at the end of our section today in Daniel chapter 11. Also, we saw last time how chapter 11 begins with a prophecy of the last rulers of Persia as, as far as the Jews were concerned and realized that all of this history, all of this history in Daniel chapter 11 and 12 is, is centered on the Jews, God's holy people. So really that gives a priority to what Daniel is going to be prophesying about and it helps us understand where the fulfillments take place in those three centuries before Christ. So, let's continue in verse 3 and 4, if you remember from last time. Verse 3 of Daniel chapter 11 says that then a mighty king will appear who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. We saw last time how that, that is talking about, of course, Alexander the Great, who became a great ruler and a great king and conquered the entire known world in a very short amount of time. And then as soon as he had conquered the entire world, he promptly died, leaving no heir to the throne. And then the Greek kingdom that he had, had sort of amassed in his reign began to break up and was split up between generals from his army and other people and it it would never again regain the huge monolithic Greek empire that Alexander the Great had, had formed. And so we see the fulfillment of this in the death of Alexander the Great at the age of 32 in 323 BC. And so now we have the situation of the Greek empire breaking up and we continue with Daniel's prophecy this internal struggle over Palestine because that's really what this prophecy is going to be dealing with this struggle about who is going to keep control over the promised land in Palestine let's, let's continue in verse 5 and let's go to verse 13 because the 5 through 13 is another chiastic section and you'll see how that works in just a second the king of the south will become strong 
But one of his commanders will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. After some years, they will become allies. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but she will not retain her power, and he and his power will not last. In those days, she will be handed over together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. One from her family line will arise to take her place. He will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. He will also seize their gods, their metal images, and their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt, which would be south, of course. For some years he will leave the king of the north alone, and then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will retreat to his own country. His sons will prepare for war and assemble a great army which will sweep on like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south will march out in a rage and fight against the king of the north who will raise a large army, but it will be defeated. When the army is carried off, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will slaughter many thousands, yet he will not remain triumphant. For the king of the north will muster another army larger than the first and after several years, he will advance with a huge army fully equipped. Now, the king of the south was Ptolemy, who ruled over Egypt, Greek Egypt. And he had a general named Seleucus, who actually fulfills this prophecy to a T. Seleucus ended up ruling Greek Syria, which would be to the north of, of Palestine. And this bone of contention became which kingdom would have control of Palestine? Greek Egypt... The Ptolemies had the initial control after Alexander, but in the end, control over the Promised Land was won by the Seleucid rulers who defeated Egypt in the end. And so we have a chiastic section here. Notice that verse 5 matches verse 13 in the idea. Remember we talked about how these, these, these connections work. The king of the south, the Ptolemies, will become strong, but one of his commanders, Seleucius, will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. And the whole idea comes full circle in verse 13 where it says the king of the north will muster another army larger than the first and after several years he will advance with a huge army fully equipped. So Daniel repeats the idea that the Seleucids flowing from Seleucus the general from Syria is going to become the dominant force in this struggle between north and south. And so, even though Egypt is going to take control of Palestine for a period of time, for a number of rulers, in the end, the north, Syria, would have control over the Jews and over God's promised land. The two kingdoms actually begin, begins with an alliance because, again, these, were, these are two parts of Alexander's kingdom. And so they had a lot of common ground. They began as allies in verse 6. After some years they will become allies. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but she will not retain her power, and he and his power will not last. In those days she will be handed over together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. In about 250 B.C., Ptolemy II sent his daughter Berenice to marry Antiochus II. Antiochus left his first wife, Laodice, to do this, but then after two years of marriage, Ptolemy II actually died. And what happened was, that left no reason for this marriage to continue. And what happened was, Antiochus II went back to his first wife, Laodice, who immediately had Bernice 
and her newborn son murdered. And that's what caused this divorce, this rift between north and south, Greek Syria in the north, and Greek Egypt in the south. And from that point on, because of the treachery that took place, this great battle broke out between these two rival Greek domains. This divorce led to a rift between Greek Syria in the north and Greek Egypt in the south, and Berenice's brother, Ptolemy III, attacked Syria to avenge the death of his sister. And so we see this prophecy beginning to be fulfilled immediately when this took place in verse 7. One from her family line, that was Berenice's brother, Ptolemy III, will arise to take her place. He will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortresses. He will fight against them and be victorious. He will also seize their gods, their metal images, and their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt. For some years he will leave the king of the north alone. Then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will retreat to his own country. And so we have this attack, retaliation, creating a cycle of violence that takes place. And it's interesting about the history is that there is, this, of course, great struggle. And we have actually Ptolemy the fourth was successful at first, and that would be the battle at Raphia, if you want to look this up in the history books. But ultimately, Antiochus would win control over Palestine. This would be Antiochus the Great, Antiochus the Third. And Third Maccabees, the apocryphal book that tells us the history of the Jews during this period, tells that when Ptolemy the Fourth, after he had conquered Syria and taken off all their articles of gold and silver from their temples, on his way back, back through Palestine, he stopped in Jerusalem. And Ptolemy the Fourth actually entered the temple of Jerusalem and he actually began to plunder the, the holy items of the temple as well, the valuable articles of gold and silver as well. And Ptolemy IV, of course, that created a huge reaction by the Jews. And so Ptolemy goes in and he mistreats the Jews and begins persecuting. And that's really the background for verse 14. In those times, many will rise against the king of the south, rising against Ptolemy IV. The violent men among your own people will rebel in fulfillment of the vision but without success. Then the king of the north will come and build up siege ramps and will capture a fortified city. The forces of the south will be powerless to resist. Even their best troops will not have the strength to stand. Now what happened was, because Ptolemy IV invaded and plundered the temple in Jerusalem, the Jews transferred their, their loyalty to Antiochus the Great from Syria because of what Ptolemy IV did. And yet, because in Judea and Jerusalem there were people that were benefiting from Ptolemy IV's reign, they wanted to have a vision, just like back in Jeremiah's day, the people looked for a vision that would tell them that Babylon was going to be defeated. These landed interests in Judea and Jerusalem, these Jews, were looking for a vision so that they could remain loyal to Ptolemy of the south in Egypt. And so what we have here going on is actually a struggle within Judea and Jerusalem as well, and we have kind of another dominion by Egypt. Now, if you know biblical history, you should see an echo here because you have the Jews in Judea and Jerusalem and they're under the dominion of Egypt again, and yet you have the Jews transferring their loyalty to Antiochus, and yet some of the Jews wanted to remain true to Ptolemy IV. And so you have Jews, again, who do not want to receive the deliverance in God's province from Antiochus but some who wanted to go back to, back to Egypt 
and remain faithful and loyal to Egypt. So we have a historical echo of Israel's history come back in this prophecy. Let's continue in verse 15. Then the king of the north will come and build up siege ramps and will capture a fortified city. The forces of the south will be powerless to resist. Even their best troops will not have the strength to stand. The invader will do as he pleases and no one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land and will have the power to destroy it. Josephus tells us that Antiochus the Great was so grateful for the Jews for their support again in his wars against Ptolemy IV that he sent money to Jerusalem to replace what Ptolemy had stolen from the temple. Now think how that would have been received by the Jews. This is a deliverer, Antiochus the Great, much like Darius and Cyrus were deliverers of Israel in the days of the Persians. And so you have Antiochus the Great from Syria, from the north, the king of the north, giving a gift to the Jews to replace their valuables that were taken from the south, from Ptolemy IV. And what Antiochus the Great did also was that he tried to clean up the situation in Jerusalem. He abandoned taxation of the Jews for three years. This is just purely out of being grateful for the Jews for transferring their loyalty to him as opposed to the king of the south, Egypt, Ptolemy IV. And then he also decreed that the Levites would never have to pay a tax to Greece again, perpetually. Of course, you could see how that would be cleaning up the holy system, the way the, way the laws and, the, and the, um, the Torah had called for life to be in Israel. And he also ordained that the priesthood would follow the law of Torah and be passed on in its rightful place. And so we have the Levites who maintain control of the, of the temple. We have this sort of reformulation of Jerusalem and Judea after Egyptian oppression from Ptolemy IV. And we have the coming of fulfillment of Antiochus the Great who was a great deliverer. And the whole beautiful land was, was centered in his, in his power by, defe- by defeating Egypt and Ptolemy IV. Continue in verse 17. He will determine to come with a might of his entire kingdom and will make an alliance with the king of the south and he will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom but his plans will not succeed or help him. Then he will turn his attention to the coastlands and will take many of them but a commander will put an end to his insolence and will turn his insolence back upon him. After this he will turn back toward the fortress of his own country but will stumble and fall to be seen no more. So Antiochus the Great, once he actually delivered Israel from Egyptian control, Greek-Egyptian control, he actually goes out and he tries to make this alliance with the south, with Egypt, by a daughter, in order to subvert Egypt. And you probably might remember this particular name. This is a very famous woman. She was Cleopatra. But what happened was, even though Cleopatra was from Syria and given to marriage to Egypt, to Ptolemy V, What happened was when she got older, she transferred her allegiance to Egypt and to her husband's background and abdicated her responsibility and her allegiance to Syria North. And what Cleopatra did was work with her husband to make an alliance with Rome. And once once Greek Egypt made the alliance with Rome, to attack Greece would be to attack Rome. And at that point, that would be suicide. And so you have Antiochus, the Great tries to make an alliance with the king of the south, 
tries to subvert his kingdom by giving him a daughter in marriage to overthrow his kingdom, but his plans will not succeed or help him. Then he will turn his attention to the coastlands and he will take many of them. Actually, we find out Antiochus the Great then started making war across Greece and that, of course, raised the ire of the Romans who felt like he was, he was sort of invading their space, so to speak. And so they sent out a general, another very famous general, if you know the ancient history, General Scipio. General Scipio actually stopped Antiochus the Great in his tracks because Antiochus the Great had tried to ally, ally himself with Hannibal and, of course, Hannibal was defeated by the Romans, specifically by the Roman general Scipio. And it's interesting that prophecy even tells you about the personality of the general that's going to defeat him. A commander will put an end to his insolence and will return his insolence back upon him. Antiochus the Great was known for his prideful boasting. He was known for making a big deal about his conquering, his victories. And Scipio was actually a Roman Stoic. If you know anything about the Roman Stoics, they did not they did not praise themselves. They were very sort of matter of fact people, and that's how Scipio treated his defeat of Antiochus the Great. Simply a matter of his duty as a faithful Roman general. And so the insolence is returned back on Antiochus the Great. Continuing in verse nineteen, after this, he, that is, Antiochus the Great, will turn back toward the fortresses of his own country, but will stumble and fall to be seen no more. Because of his defeat at the hands of Scipio, Rome laid a taxation burden on Antiochus the Great that was so heavy that Antiochus the Great was forced to begin attacking his own cities and plundering his own cities so that he could pay tribute to the Romans. In fact, at the very end here, it says he will stumble and fall to be seen no more. Actually, Antiochus the Great ended up robbing the Temple of Bel, his own people's god in order to get loot to send to Rome. And it was in the act and process of him robbing the Temple of Bel that he was actually assassinated and he stumbled and fell, fulfilling this prophecy. His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. Again, Syria, Greece, is under the domain of Rome here and has to send support to Rome. And so they have to raise the taxes and send out the tax collectors to maintain the royal splendor. In a few years, however, he will be destroyed, yet not in anger or in battle. I forgot to mention on the process here that Antiochus the Great, when he was defeated by Scipio, he lost his firstborn son to Roman control. His firstborn son was taken to Rome and was trained in Roman ways and uh, became a prisoner of the Roman state. So after he had simply delivered Israel from Egyptian control, he continued his aggression and it got worse and it worse and worse for Antiochus the Great. Verse 21, He will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when his people feel secure and he will seize it through intrigue. Then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. After coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully and with only a few people he will rise to power. When the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them and will achieve what neither his fathers nor his forefathers did. He will distribute plunder and loot and wealth among his followers. He will plot the overthrow of fortresses 
but only for a time. With a large army, he will stir up strength and courage against the king of the south. The king of the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army, but he will not be able to stand because of the plots devised against him. Those who eat from the king's provision will try to destroy him. His army will be swept away and many will fall in battle. The two kings with their hearts bent on evil will sit at the same table and lie to each other, but to no avail because the end will come at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his own country with great wealth and his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action against it and then return to his own country. Next rises a contemptible person and we should note here that we are getting very close to the center of the chiasm. This is where the heart of the passage, this 10th literary section of Daniel, really lies because this is where Daniel is going with his prophecy. This is the important part, the center. Now we look at the rule of Antiochus Epiphanes, who is Antiochus the Great's son. Antiochus Epiphanes was the one who was trained in Rome. He was a Roman prisoner of war. Therefore, he did not have the the title of royalty. He became a servant to Rome. Antiochus Epiphanes did not respect the ways of the Jews as his father, Antiochus the Great, had. Remember, Antiochus the Great had respected the ways of the Jews, had cleaned up the temple, had gone about the things properly and been grateful to the Jews for their support. Now Antiochus Epiphanes does just something that neither his fathers, that would be Antiochus, nor even Alexander, his forefather, had done. Remember, Alexander did not invade Jerusalem. God protected Jerusalem when, when Alexander came to power. Antiochus Epiphanes used his authority to allow corrupt Jews to purchase the high priesthood office from his hand. And this is what Antiochus did. He viewed the entire Jerusalem worship system as a political advantage that he could use, a political machine that he could manipulate to serve his interests. He did this by first removing Onias, the rightful high priest from the line of Zadok, and so Antiochus shatters the office of the commander of the covenant. That's what the high priest was. The high priest was the commander of the covenant. Even after the Maccabean revolt, which we'll get to in a second, that was the response to Antiochus Epiphanes' changes, the high priest office was not restored because no one from the line of Zadok, where Onias came from, was chosen as high priest. And so from this point on, from the time Antiochus Epiphanes killed the high priest and sold the office to the highest bidder, there was never again in Israel, all the way through New Testament times, a rightful high priest over the temple. There was not a rightful high priest who was offering sacrifices. The priesthood had been corrupted by Antiochus Epiphanes with the help of a few apostate Jews who stood to gain by holding that office in league with Antiochus Epiphanes. And so Antiochus Epiphanes goes about corrupting Jerusalem, debauching the priesthood, and perverting the temple. Verse 25, With a large army he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south. The king of the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army, but he will not be able to stand because of the plots devised against him. Those who eat from the king's provisions will try to destroy him. His army will be swept away and many will fall in battle. The two kings, with their hearts bent on evil, will sit at the same table and lie to each other, but to no avail because an end will come at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his own country with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. 
he will take action against it and then return to his own country. The problem that Antiochus Epiphanes ran into again was Rome. Continue in verse 29. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again, but this time, the outcome will be different from what it was before. That would be before when Antiochus the Great conquered the south. Ships of the western coastlands, and actually in Hebrew it's from Kittim, and Kittim is associated with Rome in other places. The ships from the western coastlands will oppose him and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. And so this event takes place with Antiochus Epiphanes. History records that Egypt had made an alliance with Rome. That meant, to, as I mentioned before, to attack Egypt was to attack Rome. And hence, Roman triremes, those are the ships, the Roman battleships with the, with the oars that they could use to ram other ships in the navy. Roman triremes, ships from Kittim, opposed him. In fact, a Roman official by the name of Popilius informed Antiochus Epiphanes that Egypt was off limits. Don't go to Egypt. They're ours. That's what, that's what Popilius told Epiphanes. When Epiphanes tried to stall for time to meet with his officers to give answer to Rome, Popilius walked out to Epiphanes and drew a line in the sand around him and said that we want your answer before you step out of this line or else we will attack you with the full force of Rome. And of course, Antiochus Epiphanes grew up in Rome. He knew that you do not cross the Romans. And so, here he is starting to make war on the south and Rome comes to the south's defense because Egypt, Syrian Egypt is an ally of Rome. Intimidated, utterly humiliated, he returned home. But on his way, he stopped in Jerusalem and informed the Jews that Palestine from this time forward would become uh, transferred or transformed into a fortress against Egypt and against Rome. And thus Epiphanes called on the Jews who had bought their offices, including the high priest's office, at this time it was Jason, the corrupt high priest, to get rid of the old Jewish ways and now you must become Greeks. And he told all these Jews that were in alliance with him, the apostate Jews that had forsaken the covenant, that they were going to turn Jerusalem, Judea, and the Jews into Greeks. And so what these people did, the high priests and those who were allied with them, they started bringing in the Greek culture. They brought in the gymnasium into Jerusalem. And this, of course, was a great apostasy because the gymnasium, if you know about the Greek history, the gymnasium was a place of, of physical bodybuilding and actually body worship. And of course, all the activity that went on in the gymnasium were by the men who were naked and we also have the gymnasium was a center for uh, a lot of homosexual activity as well. So this was a very, a very debauching thing to do to bring the gymnasium, the Greek gymnasium, into Jerusalem. The Jewish leaders and the priests also organized Olympic-style games in the city of Jerusalem. Now, how did they do the Greek games? Who participated in the Greek games? Only men were allowed to participate in the original Greek Olympic games, correct? And how did they, how did they participate? In the nude. And so now imagine yourself watching all these Jews participate in Olympic games. You see a problem here. They're all circumcised. And you, you got a, you got people here trying to make them into Greeks, and they're all circumcised. 
And so what the priest ordered the people to do, the participants in the game to do, was to sew foreskins on themselves so that they would look like Greeks. That's how bad, how corrupt the priesthood had become under Antiochus Epiphanes. It's graphic, I know. Sewing foreskins on them so that they would look like Greeks while they participate in the Olympic Games. What had happened was Israel had completely forsaken the sign of the covenant. It embarrassed them. It embarrassed the high priests. It embarrassed the Jews in authority because they had become allied to Antiochus Epiphanes. And we see kind of a parallel here with Jesus because we know Jesus was, was crucified naked. And the sign of the covenant, the circumcision, was displayed to the whole world. So all of this is going on and you can imagine the problem of the Jews playing Olympic games in the nude now. The holy faith, the priesthood, the temple, everything had been, de- had been desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes and his apostate Jewish allies. And they had turned Jerusalem into a Greek city-state. They had completely apostatized from the faith and had become worshipping other gods and engaging in the practices of of the Greeks. Verse 31. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. If you don't have a true high priest, you have no more daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. And hence we now come to the Maccabean Revolt, in which case a lot of the conservative Jews from the rural areas got an army together and started to put up a fight. And they were led by Judas Maccabeus. Maccabeus means the hammerer. That's actually what that means. And the Maccabees got the more conservative, the more orthodox Jews to begin to fight against Antiochus Epiphanes and his allies, and they actually began to win. They actually restored worship in, in, in the temple. They actually got rid of some of the, some of the Greek influence, abolished the games, etc. And you have this rebellion, this Maccabean revolt. One of the groups of the conservative Jews who fought with Judas Maccabeus were the Hasidim. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. H-A-S-I-D-I-M. And the name actually derives from the word covenant in Hebrew. Hasidim. The Hasidim were the first of the Pharisees that we read about in the New Testament. They were the godly who were persecuted by the apostate Jews who retained political power in Judea. And the people that were allied to Antiochus Epiphanes, they were the first of the Sadducees. Because the Sadducees are the ones, when you get to the New Testament, who hold political power in Judea and Jerusalem along with Herod the king. And so the Sadducees began persecuting the faithful among the Hasidim and during the rule of Janius, the high priest, after Jason, many Jews dropped out of Judea altogether because of the total corruption that had taken place in, Jer- in Jerusalem and the temple. And here we have the beginning of the spiritual communities called the Essenes. And they recognized, they abandoned Jerusalem and the temple because they recognized that everything in God's order of worship had become totally corrupt. And so they began forming spiritual communities separated all through the, all through the countryside in which they were 
sort of a revival broke out and they understood how to worship God in spirit and truth as opposed to the corruption that took place at the temple. But on one occasion, Johannes, this false high priest um, in this battle with the Maccabees, took 800 of his Orthodox Jewish opponents in the sight of a great banquet that he had thrown for his followers and concubines and he put 800 of his Orthodox foes on crosses. And while they were sitting on crosses dying, he brought in their families and at the foot of each of these crosses in plain sight of these men, he slaughtered their wives and he slaughtered their children. This was not done by a Gentile king like Nero. This was done by the reigning Jewish high priest who was in alliance with Antiochus Epiphanes. In verse 33, those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive a little help and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified and made spotless until the time of the end for it will still come at the appointed time. Daniel's referring to the 70 weeks. This is the time of purification. Just like the 70 years in Babylon was a time of purification for Judah. And he prophesies that there will be many that fall by the sword, many who will be persecuted, many who will be captured, burned, and, and plundered. And these were, of course, mainly the Pharisees. We don't really realize that, but the Pharisees, when they began were very righteous. They were the righteous in Israel at the time. And they were the ones who received persecution. Well, finally, historically we find out that Rome stepped in and we begin to set the contemporary scene for the coming of Christ and the conflict between Herod, the king of the Jews, and the birth of Jesus, the true king of the Jews. And Rome stepped in and basically settled everything down. Various parties within Judea made alliances with Rome And so what we have right here at the end of verse 35 and the beginning of verse 36 is a transfer from the third beast, the third kingdom, from Greece to Rome. Because at this point in time we see the beginning of Roman control over Judea. And that's what Daniel is focusing on. Everything is built around the Jews, God's promised land, and that particular setting. So here we have the very end of the Greek beast the end of the leopard and the beginning of the fourth terrible beast, the end of the bronze and the beginning of the iron and clay mix. And so we're going to have a shift right here from, from beast and from metals, if you could go back to Daniel's earlier vision, to the fourth kingdom. Well, we'll get to all of that from 1136 forward, but we should realize that the corruption and the degradation of Jerusalem during the time was the result of the apostasy from God's people. Antiochus Epiphanes was doing the political thing. He was doing what he knew best, politics. And it was the reason he got away with what he got away with was because God's people apostatized from the covenant and went along with it and became his enforcer in Judea and Jerusalem. They traded, the, they traded faithfulness to the covenant for power, wealth, and prosperity. Antiochus Epiphanes could not have done what he had done without help from his Jewish accessories. And Zechariah 10 reads like it applies to this particular time period. It talks about the, the, the cedars of Lebanon, Lebanon being cut down, the trees being destroyed, the forest being slaughtered. 
the sheep giving, being given over to their neighbor, each to rob and plunder each other. That's this particular time period. And we live in a time period with a few parallels to this. We live in a time where corruption is taking place all around us from the highest offices in the land down to the local political governors. This corruption in our day is taking place and the tyranny that comes along with it not in spite of Christians' actions to remain faithful, but again, the same pattern applies, but because Christians have already apostatized. So the lessons that we should learn here from this history, and it's, it's very interesting how the history matches up, both with Daniel's prophecy and what actually took place in history. The lessons remain the same. At this point, it really doesn't matter who wins the election or which political party takes power, of course, Jesus knew how to deal with a two-party system. He dealt with a two-party system. I mean, you try to think of it this way. You could think of the Pharisees and Sadducees in the New Testament as being the Republicans and the Democrats. It's really, that's what it boils down to. Um, I would say, you could say the Republicans were the Sadducees because they're the ones in power. The landed political interests, the wealthy, and the Democrats are, of course, always after this, this crusade over something that they're concerned about. You know, like the Pharisees were always after their concern. Or you could flip it, I guess you could say. The religious right are Republicans, so they'd be the Pharisees. And the Democrats want political power and want to have political solutions to everything. That's kind of a Sadducee idea. So you could flip it both ways. But Jesus knew how to deal with the two-party system. He condemned both of them. And that's something that we should think about, too. If you live a life that is self-consciously Christian and you seek to remain faithful to the covenant, you very well might experience some of this persecution, some of this kind of persecution that we see with the godly whom Daniel prophesied about. Now I believe that Christians will be victorious in the end because of Michael the Prince who stands up for us and rules the nations with a rod of iron. And we know the rest of the story here, where this is all going, but that won't change the fact that there will be difficulties and even persecution along the way when the apostates take control. And that's what's very dangerous about this particular time period in American history. Christians have forgotten who they serve. I'll give you an example of this, how it is right there on your TV if you just will open your eyes to see it. Big thing about Palin last couple weeks. Got the Christians all excited, right? The Christians weren't very happy with McCain for very good reason. And some of them were still going to vote for him anyway, and I, I suspect he would get the religious right vote anyway. But here you have McCain who picks Palin, and what does she say about McCain? She loves McCain, right? And yet because he picked this woman who they think is like them, and very well she might be, she doesn't stand for anything because she's willing to go along with whatever McCain is, is saying. They're willing to overlook everything about McCain that they didn't like before and now vote for McCain. But it even gets worse than that because if you go back to the, the Republican National Committee Convention, the Republican Convention, what was their big slogan? Country first. They had signs, they had chants, country first. And of course, they're making the big deal about McCain who went off to serve in, in Vietnam and put his country first, right? That's how they're selling him. Christians, that's idolatry. Country first is idolatry. And it is apostate Christians who are going that direction. And that's the danger that we have today because we are, we, are, we are doing the very same thing that took place 
in Daniel's prophecy and we will likely receive the same chastening by God that they received in their day. Antiochus Epiphanes was a rod used by God to chasten his people. And now, no matter who you get this election as president, as if that makes a huge big difference, you are going to get a rod that's going to chasten America's apostate Christians. So recognize that all this history is very important, very interesting to learn from. That is the lesson of Daniel's 70 weeks and the events that took place at this dark, dark time period in the history of God's people. And so next time we'll continue with the time period of Rome and the coming of Messiah. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us. You have protected your people in dark days and in very bright days. We thank you for this history that you've blessed us with, the affirmation of the truth of your prophetic word that has come to pass exactly how and when you said it would take place. We thank you and praise you for what you've done in raising up nations to serve your will and leaders and rulers. We know that the king's heart is in your hand. We pray that you bless us and strengthen us as we live in the particular context and time period that we live in, that you would strengthen us to be faithful to your covenant and avoid idolatry. Lord, we pray that you give us wisdom as your people to know the good and the evil and to choose the right over the wrong. We thank you and praise you for being a God to us and for raising up our families as holy and pure families fitted to serve your kingdom. Lord, we also pray for our congregational fellowship that would be sweet among people who have much in common. Draw us closer together in the days and the weeks to come. In Jesus Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.